Hey there, bookworms. Grab that cozy chair over there and join us for another thrilling narrative found within the pages of gaming history. In the mid-80s, children's educational software developer Spinnacle Software wanted to try something new and break into the adult market. To do so, they hoped to create what they called a bookware series, where they would take books and turn them into interactive fiction. They turned to well-established authors like Michael Crichton and Ray Bradbury, who contributed by helping Spinnaker adapt versions of their own books and publish them under the Tellarium Corporation label. Today, we're going to tell you the story of the Tellarium Corporation and look at its software library. As part of its story, we'll all learn about Spinnaker software and some of the other brands it created. So stick around and get ready to join us for Tellarium's story where pixels meet plot twists and adventure unfolds with the click of a button, all happening on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 183rd episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game and likely the people who've created it. It can be about a gaming console and the technology that allowed it to happen. More often than not, it's also about the companies that bring it all together. Our stories are all-inclusive. We try to tell it all. While bringing you each story, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about the Tellarium Corporation, which was an adventure game publisher that operated during the mid-80s. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, whose life might as well be the plot of a book. It might as well. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, tell everyone about your life. Well, I was born, I grew up, and now I exist. That is indeed the plot of a lot of different books, so congratulations. Thank you. I've worked hard on it. <laughs> Have you though? Yeah. Yeah, you've worked hard on being alive this long. Twenty-nine years at it. I mean, I just turned forty and I I would say I just simply get up and breathe every day. I I'm not sure if I've tried very hard. Well, hey, everyone starts somewhere, Dave. E- e- very true. I Probably have 40 years in front of me to make it all work, right? That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. What's going on this week in gaming history? Well, Dave, 23 years ago in 2001, Nintendo released a pair of Zelda games for the Game Boy Color. The Legend of Zelda Oracle of Seasons and The Legend of Zelda Oracle of Ages. Oh. But you can finish each game in itself the only way to see the entire story is by finishing one title and playing the other as its sequel using a linked password only then will you unlock a linked ending that brings it all together and wraps up the story never played them how about you i can't say that i have dave interesting concept though i mean i mean 
it's very Pokemon esque, very Nintendo proper, right? Can't you can't get everything unless you have both versions of the same game because that's essentially what they are. Yeah, when you look at it that way, yeah, absolutely, I can agree. Like you know, like you said, Pokemon esque because you had to have different versions to have access to all of the starters and whatnot. Right. So Rich. good call there. Yep, I try. So last week, you'll remember that we brought up Halo Wars 2 celebrating an anniversary. We sure did. Well, this week, it's time to celebrate the 15th birthday of the original Halo Wars. Oh, okay. So that's cool. Still a series that we have to go play. Uh, I mean, yeah, I I love that series. I play it a lot. (laughs) It is fantastic. It is indeed fantastic. You are correct about that. So Stardew Valley, one of the most successful solo developed games, celebrates its eighth birthday this week, and it's arguably still an incredibly popular game, having now sold over 30 million copies since its release. Yeah, I, I've had my moments with Stardew. I, I will give credit where credit's due. I own it, haven't played it, but I know a lot of people who have, and it seems some like fun, but just one of those ones you really got to be in the mood for. And, you know, that's, that's much true. like Animal. What Animal Crossing? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, but it's not. It's like it's something that we should play because it, it's just chill. Like that. That. That's. It's just chill. It's. It's something that you play when you don't want to have to put too much thought into it. Like you know, be on your toes. Like with all of our shooters. Like, you know, Super Earth Democracy Simulator two thousand. Y- yeah, like that one. Like that one. Like Hellgate. That's what someone asked me if I was playing it earlier today. Someone who's not into games but was trying to make conversation. Hey, you uh, you guys still playing Hellgate? Not for 20 years, but yeah. <laughs> nice. That's good. <laughs> I had to look it up. Hellgate London was 20, 2007, so not quite 20 years, but you know. Damn it near. It was a good one. So... Well, Dave, seven years ago in 2017, Horizon Zero Dawn was released and uh, still haven't played that one, despite it being bought by my supposedly super cool co-host. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder who did that. Yeah, I don't know, but somehow it's still on the unplayed list. You don't really play a lot of open world games, though. Like you're very much a social for the most part, social gamer. You don't do a lot of solo stuff. Yeah, no, that that's very true. I used to do a lot more of them, obviously, but I don't know. I just enjoy friends. You enjoy friends. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Dave, since it is a leap year, I thought it'd be fun to go over a short list of games that have all been released on February 29th. Okay. So first up, we have Space Harrier 3D for the Sega Master System, released in 1988. Okay. In 1996, we got Alien Trilogy for the PlayStation. All right. Four years later, in 2000, we got Battlesphere for the Atari Jaguar. Ooh. Eight years later, we got Gravitation for Windows. Okay. Four more years, we got Painkiller Recurring Evil for Windows. Painkiller is a good series. I own a bunch of them. I actually haven't played those ones. Not surprising. 
in 2016, Dave, for the iPad, we got Fetty Wap, Nitro Nation Stories. Well, that just took a turn, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. But, you know, sometimes it just happens. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then in 2020, we got Quest Arrest for the Game Boy. We got a Game Boy game in 2020. Uh, you know, I, sometimes you just don't got to question it, Dave. You just you got to accept it. Hey, you know what came out four years ago in 2020 as well? What's that, Dave? Beer, vodka, Stalingrad. Remember that? We played the heck out of it during lockdown. Mm, can't say that I remember that. <laughs> nope, not a bit. No, you don't remember Bear Vodka Stalingrad? No, I don't recall that one at all. I mean, you're basically a bear who has to kill as many Nazi occupiers as possible. Well, it sounds fantastic. I don't think I played that one, though. Oh, well, it's worth an effort. Sounds like you got quite the Nazi killing there. I got all of mine done in Call of Duty Zombies, though. (laughs) Yeah, we sure did get it all done in Call of Duty Zombies. Yeah, for sure. So, Dave, that's it for this week in gaming history. So why don't you tell us about today's topic? So we're hearkening back to 1982. And a couple of guys, Bill Bowman and C. David Seuss. I would keep wanting to say Dr. Seuss, but it's not Dr. Seuss. Bowman and Seuss found a company called the Spinnaker Software Corporation. Their idea was to break into the educational software market by becoming the first company to mass market low-cost educational software. And in order to do so, what they wanted to do was stand out from their competitors. They started out by creating packaging that was going to make them stand out amongst the masses. You know, this is still the early 80s, and most companies at this time are just displaying their software in basically labeled Ziploc bags. Like, no joke. And we've talked about that before with, like, I remember when we talked about the Williams, Roberta and Ken Williams, like one of their early games they sold in stores out of Ziploc bags, and they made all the labels, and they handmade all the the, the instruction manuals, right? So, I mean, at this time, a lot of people were just, basically using Ziploc bags and like mailing labels to create their packaging. But Spinnaker's idea was that they were going to spend a little bit of money, which, you know, we know now is a big deal, but at the time it was revolutionary, you know, that nobody, nobody knew or thought. So this was a novel concept, basically. Anyway, they were going to use brightly colored plastic boxes, you know, bright and colorful, like a peacock, definitely different, than Ziploc bags. You know, these were durable plastic, like like hard cases for these video, not video games, they were edu- educational software. And on top of that, they advertised, they marketed hard towards a family-oriented market, like advertised towards moms, towards dads, mostly towards moms. They put like, full-color, full-page advertisements in family-friendly magazines like Good Housekeeping, uh, Better Homes and Gardens, Newsweek. So they were definitely trying to like get mom and dad's attention to buy these 
big plastic boxes and the software within. So their first lineup of software was 1982 and it had four, there were four titles that they came out with in 1982. They were face maker, the story machine and two games in what we call the snooper trooper series. It's not like super troopers. I love super troopers. This is much not nearly as interesting or maybe it is depending on who you ask. Because to someone, Snooper Troopers might be very interesting, you know what I mean? Yeah, very well could be. So Face Maker list itself, if you go to its manual, it says it's an educational program designed as a game. It notes that children can make a variety of faces and animate them. The computer can play a game memory with children. And it goes on to note that well, creating these faces and animating these faces and playing these games with the computer that children will be taught skills like basic programming, keyboard familiarity, visual, visual sequential memory, and auditory sequential memory. So there's that game of memory in there. The story machine is exactly what it sounds like. It's in its manual. It says that you can use the computer to develop skills in writing stories. It uses animation and music to help make writing a fun experience. Uh, It teaches kids essential writing skills, helps them write sentences in the manual. It says you can use modifiers, nouns, pronouns, verbs, propositions, All those fun things, you know, that make up sentences. And as your child writes in notes, he or she also learns the fundamentals of using a computer. Now, the Snooper Trooper titles were adventure games. They were like adventure slash educational games. They were advertised as mystery simulators. Uh, One publication kind of referred to them as electronic versions of the game Clue. But basically, in it, you use a computer. The computer's called the SnoopNet computer. I I understand what they're going for, but now I just hear SnoopNet, and I think Snoop Dogg has his own. (laughs) Which is probably much more interesting. Definitely would be more interesting. Definitely more interesting. SnoopNet computer lets you search for clues on streets. And it lets you search for clues in people's houses when they're not at home. So basically, when they leave their house, you, I don't know, break in and snoop in their house. (laughs) And if you get caught snooping too many times, you lose. (gasps) Oh, no. I know. Crazy stupor troopers, you know. They... Followed up their 1982 lineup in 1983 by continuing to publish more titles. They had a very notable title called In Search of the Most Amazing Thing. It was basically an educational game that was like hidden within a halfway decent adventure game. You basically explore, I mean, an alien planet and you're looking for, I mean, what else but the most amazing thing. Whoa. I know, crazy, right? I mean, there's not much more to it. But yeah, it's like your uncle comes home one day and he's like, hey, go explore this planet and find me the coolest thing ever. And you basically just explore this very imaginative world trying to find the most amazing thing. 
I did not see what the most amazing thing was. Maybe it's it's your own opinion and you bring it back. But the most amazing thing was definitely marketed as a children's game. You know, Spinnaker was an educational software firm and they kind of all geared their educational software to children. So this was no different. It was marketed towards children's educational game. But with that being said, it was played by people of all ages. Supposedly, it was a halfway decent adventure game. It had to explore a, like, a very creative world, and that appealed to childrens of all shapes, sizes, ages, so on and so forth. So, you know, Search the Most Amazing Thing was kind of a, a smash for them. Must have been pretty amazing. <laughs> but they did, like, they, they got into other stuff too. So like there was a game called grandma's house and we're not going to confuse it with the movie grandma's house. Cause they're completely different things. Uh, in the game grandma's house, you basically created your own playhouse. You could go out and find interesting things like monkeys or a fire hydrant, or supposedly there was a whole slew of, of weird things and you could bring it back into like this house that was on the screen and you could just furnish this house grandma's house i guess with the weirdest stuff that you could think of they published another game called aerobics which was literally just exercise software uh, you pick an exercise it animated the exercise it timed the exercise and it spelled out how to do the exercise and then they also published a game called trains trains is like a sort like a corporate simulation game you basically drive a train from city to city, you pick up cargo, you deliver cargo, and you make choices in how you do that in order to create a profitable train simulation. It has like employees and salaries and, you know, buy low, sell high type deal. So it's it's a like a tr- stock market slash corporation simulator through and through circa 1983 or so which is kind of interesting you know yeah it definitely is i mean everyone thinks of when we think of train games we think of like chris sawyer's what train tycoon or railroad tycoon and this kind of predates that which is fascinating i mean that's way down the line much more interesting and complex but still kind of neat to know that there was this random one made by an educational software company i think like 10 years prior now it only would have been a couple anyway so during this period of time they produced a game called alphabet zoo which is pretty much what it sounds like it's it's teaches kids the alphabet using animals so that was interesting and then they also published a, a title called kid writer kid writer was a storybook authoring tool and Kid Writer is notable because it is recognized as the first ever word processor that was specifically developed for children. So Spinnaker had a fantastic marketing strategy that was working, you know, between the full page ads and the big colorful plastic boxes. People were scooping up the titles off the shelves pretty much all of Spinnaker's titles were said to be commercially successful, at least by their standards, at least, you know. 
circa 1984, Spinnaker was estimated to be the 16th largest microcomputer software company in the world. So that's no small feat, you know? Not at all. But if history has told us anything, uh, as we've looked at titles week after week after week, it's that as a company finds success, it obviously wants to find a way to keep that momentum and build upon it, no less, to become a bigger company. So in order to do that, they put their heads together and decided that they wanted to break into another market. You know, up until this point, they had been focused solely on children. But here they decided that they wanted to start making games for adults as well. No doubt, you know, they saw some of the excess that the most amazing thing brought them, you know, between all age groups and, and, and said, hey, this is cool. This is selling really well. We could probably do this with more titles. And so they made the decision to break into the adult market to start producing software for the adult market. And in order to do so, they decided that they were going to start publishing software under different brands, so to speak. They would each be a brand, quote unquote, that was designed to target a different audience. Not only was it a marketing strategy in that they were hoping to, you know, get people to associate brands with with audiences, just the way, you know, Spinnaker was going to be educational software for children then our topic today Tellarium was going to be you know games interactive fiction for adults so that you know they wanted to target brands by audiences but they had also kind of hoped like their vision was that if they had more brands like more brand names they would get more shelf space right because a retailer is only going to say give three shelves to spinnaker software but they may give three shelves to Spinnaker and two shelves to Tellarium and two shelves to one of their other brands, uh, Windham Classics, you know? Very good point. So it's not it's not a terrible idea. Like there was there was some logic behind what they were planning to do and expand expand, like expand even into retail stores with more brands. So what they did basically was they decided in 1984 that they were going to start creating these brands or subsidiaries of Spinnaker software. And their first one for the first one, they kind of stayed within their comfort level. They created a subsidiary called Windham classics. Now Windham classics, they were all interactive fiction games. They were graphical point and click interactive fiction games, point and click adventure games, if you will. And these games were not, they were branded because they weren't educational software games. They were targeting the adventure games market. But where it was that they were staying in their comfort level was that all of these were adventure games that were focused on children. Each adventure game published under the the Winham Classics line was based on a book for children. Now, Wyndham Classics only lasted a couple years, but over that couple years, uh, they managed to develop a whole five adventure games, Rob. Wow. I know. Just a storied, storied library, right? That's that's a huge one. It's a huge one. 
So the first one was called Below the Root. It was developed in collaboration with the author of the book Below the Root, who is Zifa Keatley Snyder. It's actually a continuation of Snyder's Green Sky trilogy. The, the book Below the Root is the first book in the trilogy. And the story for the game Below the Root picked up where the trilogy left off, and it's actually a continuation of the trilogy. So it's considered canon of it's considered canon to the series as a continuation. Uh, the Green Sky trilogy, it's kind of science fiction because it's on an alien plant world called green sky but it's kind of a fantasy series for young adults or maybe not young adults but yeah kind of an alien science fiction fantasy type game so it's really interesting that that like it was written as canon as a continuation right we're about to look at a bunch of games that are like just adaptions of novels, but that one's interesting because it's not an adaption. Like it continues the story. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, I definitely think so too. They developed another game in 1984 was based on the novel, the Swiss family Robinson. So, you know, nothing fancy there. They continued that trend in 1985. They took pages out of L Frank Baum's books, the wizard of Oz it adapted both the wonderful wizard of Oz and the marvelous land of Oz. So it picked from both novels. And I think it pulled in characters from one of Baum's non Oz books. So it kind of brought a whole bunch of stuff together, you know, as a interactive fiction, they tried something different after that. They actually made a platform adventure game with the next one. And that is a game based on Alice in Wonderland. It's kind of, loosely based on Alice's adventures in Wonderland and the book through the looking glass. It brings them together. And as a platform adventure game, it's you're basically Alice. You go down the rabbit hole and you ha you have to escape before the red King awakens. So it's very, very much like every Alice in Wonderland game that we've ever played. Um, and then finally they just, they decided that they were going to produce a game based on treasure Island, you know, and walk you through a variation on Robert Lewis Stevenson stories of buccaneers and buried gold. Side note, if you've never read Treasure Island before, I would highly recommend it. Rob, have you ever had to read Treasure Island? Uh, I have before, yes. I would say that it has impacted the depictions of pirates and popular cultures more so than any other single piece of a basically cultural literature or anything over the years. I mean, pretty much the way that we all see pirates in, in modern, like modern culture is based on the way he described them here in treasure Island. So if anything, it's a really interesting lesson in where pirates come from. Like, I mean, we know where they come from, but where, where we believe our depictions of pirates come from that whole, you know, buried golden peg legs and all that kind of stuff. So fun times, Robert Louis Stevenson. Isn't treasure Island. No, is it Swiss family Robinson? Which one of those is at Disney world. They have that Island in the middle there. Or am I like way off base for either of them? I couldn't tell you, Dave. I don't remember. I don't either. But yeah, you know, Treasure Island is basically like the essential 
book for depictions of pirates and popular cultures. Hey, Rob. Yeah, Dave. Do you know what else has really become part of popular culture over the years? What's that, Dave? Podcasting. You know, everybody's doing it these days. So if you are, dear listeners, ever considered making your own podcast, do you have something clever and engrossing that you'd like to share with the world, but you really don't know how? Well, our friends at Zencaster have created an all-in-one podcasting suite of tools that makes it easier than ever to create your own podcast. With Zencaster, it's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It allows you to record up to 4K videos with your guests, and with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you always have the highest quality recordings, even if the connection is unstable. With Zencaster, you also never have to worry about what you sound like. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes all those ums, removes all those ahs, removes all those awkward pauses in conversation. You can set the right podcast loudness and reduce background noise all with a single click of a button. And if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, relax. Those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. So if you'd like to start your own podcast, or maybe you want to take your current podcast to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our offer code, all one word, memory card lane. Do so, and you'll get 30% off the first month of any Zencaster paid plan. Sign up for Zencaster today, and you can experience the same ease in producing your own high-quality podcast as we do each week. Go out and share your ideas with the world. Share them with the world. Woo, woo. Yeah. Woo. Woo, woo, woo. So, Spinnaker Software was killing it with children. Not killing children, killing it with children. Being a successful business venture with children. You know, Spinnaker Software was great with them. Their Wyndham Classics line was great with them. But like I had said, they really wanted to expand and break into the adult market. And their way of doing so is our topic today. So the other subsidiary that they created in 1984 was called the Trillium Corporation. Well, Trillium didn't last very long due to legal issues. There was another book publisher that had rights to the word. So it's probably better known nowadays as Tellarium, which they changed the name to Tellarium like a year in. So Tellarium games were all targeted towards adults. They were based on works of literature in a variety of genres. They would include, they were all interactive fiction games, science fiction, fiction games. Well, that's a double word, right? Fantasy, uh, crime fiction, legal drama. They were all these interactive fiction games in, in all these variety of genres. Now, What's special about most of Tellarium Games Library, and specifically why, uh, even though they're really obscure, I want a chance to talk about them today. They were all pretty much developed, not all, but a lot of them, at least their popular ones. They were all developed alongside 
like established writers, the authors themselves. And they were, they were often based on the writer's worlds. Now, Wyndham Classics only made five games, was around for a couple years. Tellarium is really no different. I think it lasted a little over two years, maybe three at the most. And over the, that time, it would publish eight games, a whopping eight games, Rob. That's an impressive number, Dave. That's a very impressive number. And there were some interesting ones in there. We're not going to look at them in any particular order. Um, they did make a game on The Scoop, which was based on the detective serials The Scoop and Behind the Screen by Agatha Christie. You're basically a journalist that's working for a down-on-your-luck newspaper, which is called The Daily Courier. And you have to go investigate murders, which may or may not be connected. Ooh. Ooh. What's interesting about this one is they programmed NPCs to have like the set routine. So they kind of go about their business in different locations. So you kind of have to like follow them and eavesdrop on their conversations in order to collect clues, which is kind of a really novel concept. This was released originally in 1986. And that's a real novel concept for a 1986 like Apple game to have like NPCs that kind of are creating this real breathing world, so to speak. You know, the scoop was was decently popular. They they did not porting it to DOS and releasing it to DOS in 1989, so it's not like it it never really did anything. They made another game based on book called Nine Princes in Amber that's based on Rogers Zelens oh my goodness Zelazny why did I know that I was going to butcher that one why why so anyway it's based on his book The Nine Princes of Amber and the Guns of Avalon and that's basically a like text command based game it's fantasy Basically, like the Nine Princes in Amber, you have to like avoid assassination attempts. This game is pretty basic. It has like static 2D graphics, a, a few sound effects. It's not nearly as sophisticated as it's not nearly as sophisticated as like the living, breathing, you know, world of the scoop in that respect. However, with that being said. There are 40 different ways to progress through the game. So it's definitely like a game that let you think for yourself. Like it's text based, but there were different ways to get through it. Um, and you could interact with other player, other non-player characters and, and find one of the 40 ways to progress through the game, which makes it, which makes it kind of interesting, you know? Definitely. They made another game based on the popular TV series, Perry Mason. Nothing fancy about it. Basically, like you are Perry Mason and you have to save one of your clients the same way that Perry Mason does on the famous TV series. Um, it's considered a decent interactive fiction game. And there have been since a lot of other Perry Mason games, too. I love Perry Mason. I. I don't know. I'll I'll defend clients. This one's called Laura Knapp. Who has been convicted of the murder of her husband, Victor? Did she do it? Oh no! Did she do it? Did she do it? I don't well, know. Did she do it? Either way, your job is to get her off. 
they published a game called Dragon World in 1984 that was based on the, the novel Dragon World, basically, which was written by Byron Price and Michael Reeves. Dra- Dragon World is a really interesting like book where you... It's like the never-ending story in a lot of ways. Basically, you stumble upon a magical book, and this kid named Peter gets transported to a world where dragons are are real, and he gets dropped in the middle of this like conflict between good and evil, where dragons are just a normal part of life. They they pay they play realistically an incredibly crucial role in shaping the destiny of of this the history of this uh of this game of the series either the book or the video game form so yeah so dragon world and fantastic now there was another one that's unique in 1984 they published a game called shadow keep it was basically based on the book by Alan Dean Foster. Alan Dean Foster is Alan Dean Foster is basically, and I'm losing my train of thought. What is Alan Dean Foster, Rob? Have you read? I Alan don't Dean know. Foster? You're you're the literature guy, not me. He's a fantasy writer. This is like uh, you're a blacksmith, and you have to rescue a wizard who's been trapped in a castle by an evil demon. You ba- you basically like recruit all these characters, and you guys all like navigate this this fantasy castle. It's basically a fantasy adventure novel where you kind of navigate the whole thing. And basically, like they were, they were they were basically looking to like make this. I don't know the way this game is described. It's wizardry that's just text based. Now we've done an episode on wizardry in the past. You know, you make up a party of characters, you have different classes and races to choose from, you have different attributes, and as you go through the the, the place and you attack enemies, you level up, you get money and expertise, you use that to get better ex- uh, equipment, you use that to get better spells, as you get experience, you level up and you get stronger, um, which lets you defeat other monsters, um, and so on and so forth, so... You know, whereas Wizardry kind of did it as like a 3D, 2D, 3D type, you know, role playing game. This is more the same thing, but like a text based adventure. So with a text parser, right? You light the torch, you open the door, you put the wand of travel on the chest, you uh, give the torch to this character. Um, that text parser is the entire way you play this this game. And you work your way through your you work your way through the game, the dungeon, and 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 you try to try to try to rescue the wizard. Nakamadon? Nakamadon. I've never read Shadow Keep before, but it looks like I need to. I'm gonna add that to my, my list. Add that to my list. So this game was stored on four floppy disks. Progress in the game could be saved directly to the disk. And you couldn't never go back and rewrite the game to its original like state. So players like were advised in the instructions to copy the game onto four blank discs. So they could be so you could always play from the start 
you know, so you'd always have the game. So basically you'd buy the game as four discs. They said, hey, buy four blank discs and make an entirely new copy of the game because as you play this game, it rewrites these discs and you'll never be able to play it like it is again if you don't do this. Wow, that <laughs> that's great. <laughs> great design there. Isn't that fantastic? Oh, that's that's something. And then, so that's five. There are three more titles in the Tellarium, basically, lineup. And these are three that I saved for last. They're actually the first three titles that Tellarium ever produced. But they are the three that are basically the most notable authors. So they started out with like incredibly well-known authors, like people that we still know today. And not, not to say that no one knows Dragon World or Shadowkeep and Fine or um, Foster or Perry Mason or Agatha Christie. Like those are all, but like I would venture that these, these other ones in a lot of ways are probably still better known. So in 1984, they produced a game in cooperation with Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke based on his novel called The Rendezvous with Rama. Now, Arthur C. Clarke is one of the, like, essential science fiction authors. If you ever are asked to study science fiction from, like, early on to modern, you you can't do it without reading Arthur C. Clarke. Like, he's just one of the essential readings in in the history of, of science fiction. And Rendezvous with Rama is, like, a book... It's a story about a huge alien ship that enters our solar system. It's literally 31 miles by 12 miles across. It's huge. And it enters our solar system. And Rendezvous with Rama is told from the point of view of a group of human explorers who have to go intercept that ship and attempt to unlock its mysteries. And in the game, you're basically the captain of the ship. You have to dock with the vessel and you have to explore like the like the the ship has all these large cities on it. It's 31 miles across. So there's all these large cities that have these puzzles in them and you get alien gadgets to solve other puzzles. And you basically have to learn as much as you can about the aliens before the ship decides it's going to leave our solar system. The book won a ton of awards like the Hugo, the Nebula, which are like the biggest awards you can win as a science fiction writer. And like I said, it's. You should always read Arthur C. Clarke if you want to read essential science fiction. And this is like one of the books that you should read if you ever want to read Arthur C. Clarke. So for them to have based a, they they didn't know at the time, or maybe they did. This was 10 years. The book was 73. The game was 84. This was a huge win for Tellarium, right? To get Arthur C. Clarke and to get a book that had won the Hugo and the Nebula and like it was a huge win for them to 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 get this author on board and to be able to adapt one of his books over to interactive fiction for sure. And then just before this, they had created a game in conjunction with cooperation with Ray Bradbury. And that, of course, is his essential novel, Fahrenheit 451. It's an adaption of his book. The adaption itself was adapted by another author. That author's name was Len Neufeld. Neufeld is best known for having written another series called the Be an Interplanetary Spy series. And this is kind of a continuation. It, it takes place five years after the end of the book. 
And basically, like, the main character guy from the book series is now an agent for the Rebellion, who's, like, rebelling against martial law. And so you have to break into the library and steal microcassettes, you know, that were all made from the books in the library. And if you don't know the story of it, people burn books. So these are microcassettes for books that have been burned and they don't exist other than the microcassette. And basically you have to like transmit this, you know, collect the microcassette and then transmit the information onto a resistance network so that cells all over the world can have copies of the book and reprint the book and distribute the book as in rebellion to the, you know, the people who are trying to burn books. Because, you know, the people who burn books are always the good guys. Wink, wink, wink. Yeah. Stupid world we live in. You make contact with the rebellion through the use of a lighter and literary quotations, which is pretty cool. So that's awesome. Now, most of the game, like I said, was an adaption of his novel, obviously, because it takes place after it has to be an adaption. takes place in the same world, same characters. And that was all written by Neufeld. But the prologue to the game, mostly because it ties into the books and you, like I said, there's a rebellion network and you tie into it with a quote unquote intelligent computer that helps you. The prologue and the responses that are, you know, the the dialogue for said intelligent computer, those were all written by Ray Bradbury himself. So Ray Bradbury actually contributed to this game which is super cool in itself it makes it a a unique title but with that being said Talarium's very first title in the Talarium line in terms of a an author contributing is probably the most unique so Michael Crichton who's best known nowadays for the Jurassic Park series he was actually a computer hobbyist And as a computer hobbyist, he actually decided at one point that he was going to develop a game alongside a few partners. He had another programming friend and he had an artist friend and they decided that they were going to make a new game. What they decided they were going to adopt was Michael Crichton's book, which is called Congo. There's a movie now based on on the movies called Congo, too, so. So they take Congo and they decide they're going to adapt it, right? And they're working on this game as hobbyists in their spare time. They put about 18 months into this project. And about 18 months into it is when Talarium decides that they want to make the subsidiary, right? When, when Spinnaker, rather, decides they want to make the subsidiary. So they make the subsidiary, they make Talarium, and they basically start reaching out to established authors because that was our always going to be the plan they reached out to all these established authors and like hey do you want to approach or do you want to adapt a novel of yours for our new what they called bookware line right they were going to be video games based on books and so one of the people that they approached was michael Crichton, and Crichton, 18 months into a computer like graphic adventure version of his own game congo was like Hmm, let me show you something. (laughs) And he basically showed them what they had been working on for 18 months. And Talarium was floored. Like, most of the work was done for them, right? Like That's awesome. Crichton was like, hey, look, 
I already have a video game. Do you want to help me finish and publish it? Hell yeah, Tellarium said yes. Hell yes. Like, that was a, that was just done. So, so Congo, so this game is actually unique because Michael Crichton literally developed the game. Like, he programmed parts of this game. So they signed, uh, of course, Tellarium says yes, we're going to publish the game. Michael Crichton and Tellarium signed a contract uh, to do a graphic adventure version of Congo. But lo and behold, this is still early on in all this, and, and Crichton or Tellarium, they don't realize at the time that Crichton had already sold all his adaption rights to that novel away. So instead of the game being called Congo, it's called Amazon. The name was changed, so uh, the setting was moved. It was no longer Africa. Now it's going to South America, where the Amazon is. The diamond mine from the Congo is now going to be a emerald mine in the in the Amazon forest, and the talking gorilla in the Congo is now going to become a talking parrot. Nice. So, so they had to make some changes, but otherwise. It's a faithful adaption of it's a faithful adaption of Congo. And being that most of the game was completed by Crichton and friends, Telario was actually able to take the game, finish it, and port it over to the Commodore 64. So it was pretty much released on both platforms almost at the same time. Um, and that's probably also why this is Telario's best-selling title. So Amazon, which came out in 1984, sold about 100,000 copies. It was easily the, the best title across the entire Telarium and maybe even Spinnaker. I, I couldn't find Spinnaker sales numbers with the time I had to do research on this. So, I mean, it, it, 100,000 copies isn't bad for a 1984 title, you know? Not at all. So... They also pub they also had planned on making a few other games that just didn't happen. They were going to adapt uh, Robert Heinlein's Starman Jones and Philip Philip uh, Philip Farmer's The Great Adventure. So yeah, they had plans for others, but though to, admittedly those plans just they 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 didn't happen. You know, by the late eighties, personal computers were. They weren't that popular. You know, people were buying business-oriented machines into late 80s. They didn't really see a resurgence till the mid-90s. I know we got our first computer in 95, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe 93. I think it was 95. Um, I, I remember Windows 95. It was a pa Packard Bell in 95. So, so personal computers weren't that popular. So they were selling well by standards, but like they were struggling financially at the same time, you know, with all these educational titles. So as they kept seeing that business computers were the popular choice for hardware, they decided that they were going to go the route of so many other companies that we've talked about and ditch their video games for personal productivity titles. God, nice. how many like like Lotus did that recently? What other company? We with that that same episode we focus on other company, the one that was freaking bought out by Activision, uh, uh, Zork, the Zork company, Infocom. Infocom did the uh, same yeah. thing where they they went business oriented. They tried to make their spreadsheet software and it bankrupted them 
and, and Activision had to buy them and bail them out, which in turn bankrupted Activision. But that's another story for another episode. Go listen to it. Anyway, they phased out their educational titles, entertainment titles. They began to focus on on, on personal productivity. By 1987, the Wyndham, you know, Wyndham Classics was gone in 85. Tellarium would, would be gone in 1987. So by that, by the time they decided to focus on personal productivity, they had already been taking the steps to phase out their educational and entertainment lines. Yeah. And Spinnaker just kind of trudged on as a productivity line, um, kind of doing productivity and some some educational productivity type stuff. They were bought out by the learning company in 1994. Mattel would eventually buy out the learning company. So now everything Spinnaker is under the Mattel Mattel banner. And as for the players in this, C. David Seuss would go on to become the CEO of Northern Light. They do management solutions, market research, competitive intelligence for global enterprises. And Bowman, the other guy who founded Spinnaker, he would become the dean of business and economics at the Catholic University of America. So, you know, hmm. they they went all they all went on to do something. That's quite the job change there. <laughs> I know, I know, but you know what? Like I said, a lot of companies went on to do this personal productivity switch. It didn't go well for any of them, in my opinion. But that Zork one, now that I brought up, that was a really fascinating story. I would highly encourage you to go back and check it out. We did. It was only a couple months ago that we did a Zork episode. Really fascinating episode about how gamers helped shape the design of like that game, like Playtesters in the 1970s, which was really fascinating. Of course, if you want to check out our old episodes, you can do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people do on our website? Well, you can find a calendar of our upcoming episodes. You can find a link to our Discord where you can come hang out with Dave and I and talk about whatever is on your mind. You can find a link to our Patreon where you can help support us and get access to ad-free and unedited versions of our episodes. And you can find links to our social media, where I am on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong, which I'm not, but that's okay. Each week, we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, console, person, company, just some topic that I deem relevant to this week in gaming history. Usually it's the publication date for a game in the library. Uh, in doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Each week when we sit down to prepare for these episodes and we do research, we learn things. That's the best part about doing this. That's why I do this, because every week I learn new stuff about a new topic, and then I get to sit down and organize that into a fascinating way to teach it to everyone else. We teach, we learn. It's great, honestly, and I enjoy doing it week after week after week. But a recognition of the fact that we're here to teach, we like to talk about what we've learned. So, Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I learned about everything because, honestly, I had never come across Spinnaker or Tellarium or any of those offshoots. None of these games said anything to me or uh, had ever come across my gaming history. 
but I do think it's really cool to know that they created a lot of games with the help of authors. So games based on books with the help of the authors. Uh, I think that's really cool. And it kind of helped, in my opinion, bring some of those books into a different light because, you know, it's not everyone who reads books likes games and vice versa, but it was a way to kind of bring the two worlds together and get people who may have been so into the book they wanted to try the game or, you know, someone who thought the game was so fun that they wanted to go back and read the book. And that's just freaking awesome. I agree with that. Um, I think that's fascinating. So that's my big takeaway. What about yourself? I am so fascinated by the fact that Michael Crichton programmed a video game. (laughs) Why is that? I just think it's cool. I mean, I never knew that. I never knew that he was a computer hobbyist. I never knew that he literally had a hand in making one of his own video games. I just think that's like such a cool concept. Like who would have guessed? I don't know. I had no clue. It is a, it is a pretty damn cool concept when you think about it. Yeah. Very, very cool. Well, that'll do it for Spinnaker for Wyndham classics and for Talarium corporation, three video game development companies that I don't know that you would have ever heard of unless you're a, grew up in the time period or you're a huge dork like me huge huge not huge. like physically in size not not my dorkiness so rob before i take it out into next week what would you like to add to today's episode well dave as always i do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to all of our listeners it means the world to us to have you here and we hope that you enjoy listening and get a little bit of knowledge out of each and every episode so thank you for your time all right folks well we've had a blast diving into the world of the Talarium corporation and exploring the fascinating history behind its library of bookware games it's a small glimmer towards the end of a popular area of text-based adventure games and otherwise. Next week, though, we're putting away the sophistication of storied literature, and we're diving headfirst into crude humor by looking at Conker's Bad Fur Day. (laughs) Nice. That is one extreme to the other, man. One extreme to the other. So get ready for a dose of humor, a ton of cultural references, and a whole lot of fury fun. Not the Furies. I just invoked the Furies. Why did I invoke the Furies? (sighs) Join us again next week as we take another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing.